Stripping down science. The Naked Scientist. Hello, welcome to this week's Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Dr. Kandani. Hi, Kat. Hello. Now, coming up this week, we're going to be finding out how scientists have achieved what amounts to the holy grail of anaesthesia because they've managed to block pain but without affecting other nerve pathways. In other words, your ability to move. And they've done it with the help of an unusual thing, and that's chili. Find out how they did that shortly. Also, scientists are testing artificial corneas, which could be used to restore the sight to people who have corneal damage. That's very exciting. And we'll be hearing how scientists are unlocking the hidden clues about past volcanoes that are concealed in a strange place. And that's masterpieces that were painted hundreds of years ago. Cat. And also this week, we are exploring the science of beer. That's beer making and brewing. We'll be finding out how you actually make beer and also about a clever way to use carbon dioxide to get more flavour out of hops. Plus, we'll also be delving into the history of brewing. It was a big communal get-together and they would brew large quantities of this stuff, we're talking about you know, 100 litres. It wouldn't have a long shelf life. So once it's brewed, it's got to be drunk. Even if it's got to be drunk within three days, that's a big party. And everybody would get involved and everybody would help drink beer. <laughs> no, that wasn't the start of Freshers' Week. That was actually the culture in ancient times, and it's a culture that still seems to be thriving in many cities in England today. So if you've got a question for us about the science of brewing and booze and alcohol, or you just want to say hello, then you can get in touch. Email chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider, on the web at ukfast.net. Now, how about hitting pain where it hurts? Because that's what a lot of adverts have told us that their products will do. Uh, and also what doctors have been trying to do for a very long time, because a major problem with anaesthetizing things is there are very often side effects. And when you anaesthetize or turn off pain in one part of the body, you inevitably also shut down other nerve pathways, such as the pathways that enable you to move. And it's been a long-term goal of anaesthetics to try and find a way just to affect pain. And that's exactly what a group of researchers who are working in Harvard University, led by Clifford Wolf, have managed to do this week, because what they've done is to use some strange ingredients. They've used chilli, which is the stuff that makes your tongue burn when you put it in curry, and they've combined it with a derivative of an anaesthetic, a local anaesthetic agent, which is called lignocaine. That doesn't sound like a great curry to me. Uh, you don't have to eat it, thankfully. You actually inject this stuff. But the derivative of lignocaine is called QX314, and the reason it doesn't work in its normal form as a very good local anaesthetic is because it has a positive charge on the surface of the molecule. And the way local anaesthetics work is when you inject them, they go into a nerve fibre, they dissolve and pass through the membrane the outside of the nerve fibre, and then they go inside the nerve and lock onto a channel in the nerve from the inside. So they have to get into the nerve, and if they've got a positive charge on their surface, they can't do that very well. So what these guys have done, by combining capsaicin, chilli, with this stuff, the, the capsaicin locks onto a certain channel on a nerve fibre, which is only expressed on nerve pain, pain fibres, which is called TRIP, or TRP-V1. So when the capsaicin locks on, it opens up this channel in the nerve cell membrane, and then the QX314 anaesthetic flows through that hole in the membrane, gets inside the nerve cell, and blocks pain. But because only pain fibres have this capsaicin receptor, it's only them that are infected. And what they actually did was to, to put this into the sciatic nerve of rats and mice, 
and this is the nerve that supplies the back leg. The animals could move around perfectly normally, showing that they weren't affecting their motor pathways, but when they put them on a warm surface, the animals would, would uh, sit there quite happily, but normal animals would jump off quite quickly because they felt that it was hot and unpleasant. Because that could have amazing benefits in childbirth, obviously, when you, you give someone an epidural and it, it kind of knocks them out from the waist down, so that, that could potentially be really I great. can see how this would be really exciting for exactly that reason, that's right, because when you give someone an epidural, they can't move properly and it makes pregnancy prolonged, it makes childbirth uncomfortable because you're stuck on a bed once you've had this. This could be a way of, of making it much more selective. Let's hope they uh, get that act together by the time I have a baby. Anyway, uh, I've got a story about artificial corneas. Now, the cornea is the transparent layer that covers the front of our eyeballs and protects them from, you know, stabbing fingers, things like that. Um, but the cornea can become damaged either through inherited diseases or through corrosion, you know, sort of it becomes knackered, basically. And this can lead to blindness. And one solution is to carry out a corneal transplant. So you remove the damaged tissue and replace it with a donated one. But obviously these are, are donated organs, essentially, you know, the donated tissues. And there's a massive waiting list for the process. Around 40,000 people in Europe are waiting for a corneal transplant every year. Now, researchers at the Fraunhofer Institute for Applied Polymer Research in Potsdam and the Department of Ophthalmology at the University Hospital of Regensburg may have found a solution. And this is in the form of an artificial cornea. Now, people have tried to do this before, but they haven't really made one that works. They, they find that cells from the, from the existing cornea kind of grow into it and this clouds the vision and stuff like that. So these new corneas are based on a polymer that prevents cells from growing into it. So you don't have this clouding problem. And also they, they coat the edge of these artificial corneas with a special protein that helps them to attach to the cells in the eyeball. And also it's been designed to, see, to survive high temperatures so you can sterilise these things before you go and stick them in someone's eye. Now at the moment it's still early days. They've tested the artificial corneas in rabbits and things look good. And uh, if things continue to go well for them, they hope to test them sometime in 2008 in humans. That is exciting because, as you say, massive problem. And if you can get this stuff and it's cheap, then it could really make a big difference because so many people can't actually have d decent vision because their corneas have been damaged by various processes. Yes, yeah, it's, it's something potentially very simple. One thing you can't appreciate if you've got damaged eyesight is masterpieces and works of art. And there's a really interesting study that's come out of Greece this week, the Academy of Athens, where Christos Xerophos and his colleagues are working. And they wondered whether whether we can actually use ancient masterpieces to get an idea as to what air pollution was like, and particularly pollution from volcanoes going back hundreds of years. So what they did was to take digital photographs of lots of different works of art, including pieces by Turner, famous artist from the UK, of course. Lots of sunsets, and smoky That's things. right, by looking at the, si the skyscape and then using in their digital images... Uh, software that could analyse how much red was being used, they could then compare the amount of red in the picture to times when there were supposed to be lots of volcanoes, time when there were fewer volcanoes, because volcanoes put huge amounts of dust and ash into the atmosphere, and this, because the particles are very small, scatters light. And as the sunlight comes through the atmosphere, if you scatter red light, sorry, if you scatter blue light, it makes the light look much redder. So if you've got good volcano activity going on you should get redder sunsets and that's exactly what they found they saw a very strong correlation with some major explosive volcanoes in the past few hundred years they, they matched up their results with krakatoa in 1883 and also in 1680 and what they're saying is because we haven't got a snapshot of what the atmosphere was doing hundreds of years back we don't really know whether the records we've got are any, are any good or not but According to what they've discovered, you could use ancient paintings and the history locked away therein because of the way they've painted the skyscape as an index of what volcanoes were doing. Well, maybe you could date paintings with that as well. Dating well, it, paintings with volcanic so if, activity. So if you've got a very red sky but it doesn't fit with a recent volcano, 
they it's made probably it up. fraudulent. Yeah, <laughs> maybe Turner was just making it up. Anyway, um, last week you you may have heard me um, dialing into the show from the National Cancer Research Institute conference in Birmingham, and it was absolutely fantastic finding out all about the latest science um, and hobnobbing with some of the top bods in the world. It was very exciting, uh, and one of the most interesting talks was from Professor Greg Verdine, and he's from Harvard University, and he actually highlighted a really important elephant in the room when it comes to cancer research. Now you know. We're always talking here on the show about new genes found in cancer, new proteins, new molecules. And the idea is, you know, you'll always be able to design a drug to hit them. That'd be fantastic. A brilliant treatment for cancer. But around 80% of these potential targets are what scientists call undruggable. Simply, they can't be hit with the kind of drugs we already have. So at the moment, we have kind of small drugs, these small chemicals, uh, which are things like Tarsaver, you know, the little molecules that, that hit targets inside cells. So lots of things for us to be gunning for, but we've got no weapons exactly. to shoot them. Exactly. And we have, we have antibodies like Herceptin that kind of attack on the surface of cancer cells. But there's about 80% of these molecules that we can't hit. So what Verdine and his team have done, they've got an entirely new type of drug and they've got little, it's kind of a halfway house. They've got little stretches of protein. And normally if you have a little stretch of protein, it sort of flaps about wildly all over the place. But what they've done is using chemistry, they've stapled the two ends of this protein together so it doesn't flap so much and it keeps the right structure so it can go into the target. Uh, and because of the shape and the properties of these things, they can potentially hit a much larger range of targets than drugs we already have and in fact they showed us some really whizzy stuff where you could have multiple what they call staples along the length of a peptide and these things are stable uh, you can heat them up to about 90 degrees and they're resistant to enzymes like trypsin and this is important because the, the, the holy grail of a cancer drug is something you can give to people by mouth in a tablet and this mm. means that these drugs would probably be very stable in But if that they're form. that stable, how does the body get rid of them? Is there not a danger they could build up to very, very toxic levels and have side effects? Well, so far it seems that they, they're okay in mice in clinical trials. Obviously that's something that would need to be addressed with further studies and they're hoping to start some clinical trials next year um, or, or maybe in the next couple of years. But um, the idea is that eventually you know, they would be broken down and, and passed out through the body, hopefully. And hopefully there wasn't really an elephant in the... No, there wasn't really an elephant in the room. Now, also in the news this week is a story about hot, smelly sex, but at least not in humans. This is in primitive plants. And Irene Terry's at the University of Utah, and she's found that there's a special adaptation in cycad plants that forces insects to pollinate them and then move from one plant, the male one, to the female one. And they do it by getting very hot and then releasing a powerful, which is sometimes even toxic smell. And she joins us now from, from Utah. Hello, Irene. Hello. Thank you for joining us on The Naked Scientist. So tell us about these plants. What actually are they? Uh, they're very primitive plants. Uh, uh, their lineage goes back uh, well before the dinosaurs, called the Permian. Um, and that's where the fossils have been found. And so they made their heyday during the Mesozoic or during the age of dinosaurs, and it's also gone through a lot of bottlenecks uh, along with other extinctions during uh, between the Cretaceous and the modern uh, period. So, so what was the big unknown with this plant then, uh, Irene? The big, uh, well, uh, for a while we even thought these plants were wind-pollinated, but many researchers in the 1980s uh, discovered there were beetles that were associated with, with the pollination, and uh, on sabbatical in 1999, I worked with a, a taxonomist who used to be the head of the British Museum, actually. He's living in uh, Canberra now in Australia. And I uh, worked with him on some small insects that he found on male 
uh, cycad cones and also had seen them go to female cones, but he hadn't done the uh, uh, definitive studies to show that they were actually pollinating. So why is this also- such a big question? Sorry to interrupt you, Irene, but wh- it stands to reason if you've got something which, uh, a cone, which attracts these beetles or these insects, why should there be a problem with them migrating between the male and the female parts of the plant? Well, because most of the insects that are associated with these live only on the male cone. They lay their eggs and they develop, the larvae develop on these male cones. And so the question arises, why would they want to leave this nice home where they, they can lay, mate, lay eggs and, and, and complete their life cycle? So the, the male plants have to get rid of these insects to spread their pollen to the female cone. And that's where the, sort of the question of how do they do that and for at least the system that I've been working with in Australia, uh, the, the cones start to heat up and they start producing these really strong odors that if I'm over, over, uh, standing over one of these cones, it almost uh, makes me choke because it becomes so strong. When you say the cones warm up, how much warmer do they get? They get about 12, uh, we've measured them up to 12 degrees Celsius above uh, the ambient temperature. That's a lot. This is not just the sun warming them up. This is no, the, the it's cone. not just the sun. We've actually put little tents over them so that it isn't the sun, and we've measured them that way. So how are they doing that? Uh, they have a process uh, whereby they burn, they're burning a lot of the sugars and starches that they've stored within the cone uh, to produce, uh, to increase their metabolism. And instead of making certain cellular compounds that run all the cellular functions, they're losing a lot of that energy as heat. And what, and so what effect does this have on the cone when they get hot like that? It makes the insects actually more active. So we know the heat is part of the process. But in addition, there's this uh, chemistry that's taking place where they're ramping up a lot of the, the chemistry that uh, becomes very um, noxious to them. And actually in studies where we've uh, tried to look at the behavior of the insects just with the chemistry alone, uh, it can actually kill them if they're stuck inside with some of the So the cones cones are getting very, very warm. This is causing them to produce lots and lots of these smelly chemicals which drive the insects away. Yes, drive them to the edge of the cone. And then uh, once they get to the outside of the cone, all of a sudden they begin to take off in flight and uh, they drift around in the air for a while. And as these cones heat up, they also begin to, later in the day, they begin to cool off and the, the odors diminish quite a bit. And so they're attracted back to cones. Some of those may be males and the females as well have the same odors. Well, so the, the male cones more. and the female cones look very alike. So the insects come back to both inevitably. Well, it's, we think it's mostly the odors they're attracted to. We think there are some visual cues, but we haven't actually been able to isolate. And the insects are, are presumably still covered in pollen from the male cone previously. Still, so they yeah. go into the female cone and pollinate it. That's exactly right. And that's how it, basically how it works. <laughs> Evolution's an amazing thing, isn't it? It is, and natural history, we've got to, I think we have a lot more to learn out there <laughs> just by making observations and then doing some follow-up studies like this. Irene, thank you very much. Okay, thank you. That's Irene Terry. She's from the University of Utah, proving that the world of plants and sex is often a very hot topic. Stripping down science. Okay, let's do it. The Naked Scientists. And before we go on to our kitchen science, we just had a quick call in from Andy in Harlow about the uh, Chilean pain relief story uh, that you did, Chris. Um, he, he uses a morphine patch, and if he forgets to put one on, he gets withdrawal symptoms. He wants to know if this chili combined with painkiller could be an alternative. Well, the reason people have to use morphine is because it's a very powerful painkiller, 
And the downside of using morphine is that it does have these addicting qualities. And so if we can come up with a better way to block pain without producing these addicting qualities, that will be really good news. The thing is that up until now, no one has managed to do that, which is why I think this story is so powerful, because you can home in just on the pain and not have the side effects of drugs like morphine, such as addiction. That sounds cool. So maybe, Andy, <laughs> we'll have to get the science a bit further. Anyway, now it's time for you to do some science, or maybe not, because uh, today's show is all about beer. But some people may prefer a glass of the hard stuff. We sent Ben out to discover the science of scotch by learning how whiskey is made. Hello and welcome to this week's beer-related kitchen science. This is one that you can't do at home, not only because heating alcohol could be dangerous, but also because this isn't actually legal to do at home, so you could get in a lot of trouble. I've come today to the University of Cambridge's chemistry department and I'm here with biophysicist Chris Foreman. Hello. Today's show is all about beer so what is it that you're going to show us? Well actually today we're going to show you how you make whiskey from a substance which is very similar to beer. As a model substance we're actually going to use some real beer and we're actually going to distill it in the apparatus that we've set up here. So you make whiskey by distilling something a bit like beer? Yeah well the whiskey starts off as barley, water and a bit of sugar and some yeast and then you let it brew, it's the yeast in that mixture that creates the alcohol. But unfortunately, the yeast can't get it beyond 15%. So if we want something with a bit more kick, we're going to have to do a bit of separation and to concentrate the alcohol in the beverage. So how do you go about concentrating the alcohol? Well, the process is uh, is known as distillation, and really you're not concentrating the alcohol so much as separating it out of the mixture. Now, the way that it works is fairly straightforward. When you have a liquid, there will always be atoms and molecules evaporating, and there will always be atoms and molecules in the gas condensing back into the liquid. But when you have a mixture of liquids, for example, alcohol and water, the gas that's produced will have a mixture of alcohol and water, but in different proportions. That's very important. In the gas phase, there's more alcohol than there is in the water. So consequently, you can capture that gas, recondense it, and then you have a liquid which has a higher concentration of alcohol. And that is the process of distillation. So it relies on the fact that different substances in your original liquid have different boiling points, effectively, and so will be present at different proportions in the vapour that comes off the liquid. That's pretty much on the nose, although it's important to realise that the mixture itself has a boiling point and that all components will evaporate into the gas. So the gas is never a pure form. It's always a mixture. So, for example, in beer, you've got water, alcohol, and then all the tasty stuff. But in the gas phase, what you'll have is water, alcohol, and all the tasty stuff, just in different proportions. Well, I can see you've got a round-bottom glass flask, and that's in a heater. And coming straight up from that is a tube with an opening in the top, where you've put a thermometer, and an opening in the side attached to another tube that's angled down to a pear-shaped flask. The tube coming out of the side has an extra glass tube around the outside of it, which has got water running through it to keep things cold. But once we've heated the beer up, what actually happens to the gas? As the gas comes up the column above the flask, it will reach the top of the condenser and begin to condense. And it drips out at the bottom into our pear-shaped flask here. And hopefully it won't all go that way, that's to say pear-shaped, but it will all work very well. Okay, excellent. Well, I have brought along a bottle of beer that I've smuggled into the chemistry department, so uh, shall we crack that open and get on with it? Why not? Okay, so I'm pouring the beer in, and it's just draining down there, through the column, and into the flask. So how much beer are you putting in there? Well, it's about 70 millilitres. So we're not putting too much beer in there. Is that because we don't need much? Will this get much alcohol? It won't get that much. I mean, this is 
5.6%, so we should get about 3 or 4 millilitres of alcohol out. So we've got to let the beer, the bubbles die down. I've got to pop the thermometer in. So we've put a thermometer into the top of the tube above the beer. Why do we need this? Right, OK, now this is very important. If you put the thermometer in the liquid, you will measure the temperature of the liquid, not the temperature of the vapours. What matters is the temperature at which that vapour is. Measuring the temperature in the vapour phase is crucial. OK, so now we have a tube ready to cool things down as it comes through. We've got a thermometer ready to measure the vapour. Where do we go from here? We have to uh, start heating the beer, and that's what we're going to do now. Excellent, so we'll put the heater on. And uh, what sort of temperature do we want the beer to be at? Well, in a pure ethanol and water mix, that will start to distill at about 78 degrees centigrade. Because the concentration of ethanol in this fluid is much lower, the point where you get distillation will be a little bit higher. So how long do you think it will take for our small amount of beer here to get up to the right temperature? It won't take too long. take about 15 to 20 minutes to go. Excellent. Well, we're going to leave the beer to distill and we'll come back to you later in the show to let you know what happened. That just gives me a chance to uh, go down to the Flying Pig pub and uh, have a pint and learn a bit more about the damage that alcohol can do to your body. And luckily for him, Ben doesn't have to experiment to learn about the damage drinking does because he'll be finding out later by speaking to Dr Mike Allison, who's a liver specialist from Addenbrooke's. So we'll hear from Ben later in the pub. Thanks very much. And this is The Naked Scientist with Dr Chris and Dr Cat. We're talking about the science of beer and brewing and booze this week, as well as finding out about the health disbenefits. In a second, we'll be finding out why beer is actually good for you, because we'll be hearing from Charlie Bamforth. He's at the University of California at Davis. And also waiting in the wings is Ray Marriott. He's from Botanics Limited. They're a company based in Kent, Garden of England, where they grow lots of hops. And uh, he's come up, well, his company have come up with a very clever way to use carbon dioxide to get more flavour from hops so that we can make better beers. So that's all on the way. The Naked Scientist podcast, brought to you by thenakedscientist.com Now there must be thousands of beers available worldwide and of course beer sales are a very big business but how do we actually make beer and at the same time, why do we taste the tastes in beer that we taste? Well, joining us to help us out is Professor Charlie Bamforth. He is from the University of California at Davis, but he's also Professor of Beer and Brewing. Charlie, are you really Professor of Beer and Brewing? Yes, it's a uh, hard life, but somebody has to do it. I was going to say, can I have your job if you don't want it? No, I think I've got the best job in the world and I'm sticking <laughs> to it. What, what does that actually involve? Well, basically what I do is, uh, is uh, I have three components to my job, teaching, research, outreach. And uh, teaching, we, I teach people all about the science and technology of brewing beer. And we do have a pilot brewery here and people can actually learn how to design and create their own beers. Uh, I have a very active research program and I also uh, have an outreach role of uh, teaching people, uh, California and beyond, about uh, what a wonderful drink beer really is. I suppose you must have a queue of students outside your door wanting to join your course, but when you actually talk about making beer, what's actually involved in the process? Well, it starts in the barley fields, uh, where you're you're producing really good quality uh, malting barley, and then the malting barley has to be... uh, controlled, uh, uh, germinated in a very controlled way to, uh, to soften it and develop the enzymes that will break down the starch. And then that, uh, the, the malt that is produced is, is uh, or the, the germinated barley is dried and kilned. That introduces lots of color and flavor, the classic malty flavors. That then goes to the brew house and is ground up and extracted with hot water. And the starch degrading enzymes, the amylases, break down the starch to sugars. Then the, the liquid uh, which is produced or extracted is called uh, wort, and it's boiled with hops to extract bitterness and aroma, and then cooled and pitched with uh, yeast, Saccharomyces, 
and the yeast, of course, produces alcohol and some other flavors as well. And then there's a, a downstream sort of cleaning up process, some filtration, some stabilization, and it's packaged. Quite so wh- why is some beer flat and, and other beers are quite fizzy? <laughs> Well, I mean, yeast produces alcohol and carbon dioxide in the classic uh, fermentation process. Uh, it doesn't produce all the CO2 that you would uh, want in a, in, a, in a fairly highly carbonated beer. Um, and uh, for some beers, uh, more CO2 is introduced. But uh, for other beers, it's, uh, you know, the CO2 is allowed to drift away. And, uh, and so a classic uh, cask ale from England is fairly low in carbonation, perhaps 1.1 volume, 1.2 volume, something like that. But, you know, some of the wheat beers in Germany are very highly carbonated. They've got three times more CO2 than, than, than liquid, three volumes or more. I've got an email here got from there. Gregory. Um, Gregory is Stardarub, uh, sorry, Starradub, and he's on the East Coast. He's at MIT, and he says, um, I listen to the podcast every week, and I'm very interested in this because um, I sometimes brew my own beer. When I open a bottle of beer that I've brewed, sometimes it behaves nicely and fizzes up all over the place, but this doesn't seem to be correlated with how long the beer is spent in the bottle. Since I reuse the bottles, I'm wondering, therefore, if some bacteria have got into the beer and they keep fermenting it in the bottle. Does this theory make sense, and what other explanations might there be? Well, there's all sorts of uh, potential problems with uh, if you brew beer yourself. You know, I mean, the, the key... A secret to brewing good beer at home is hygiene, hygiene, hygiene. It's always possible that you know there's residual sugar that's not been fermented properly in the in the fermenter and that's left behind in the bottle and it accumulates and uh, there you are. And sometimes there may be leakers and the CO2 may come out through the cap and oh, there's all sorts of possible explanations. And, and Alexis Waldo says, what makes Guinness or Stout so dark, thick and foamy and so good compared to the lighter, clear beers that you get uh, elsewhere in places like the US? Well, there are many excellent beers, and some of them are very light, some of them are very dark. The, the colour of Guinness is due to roasted cereal, roasted barley, and they have a very heat, uh, intense heating process, and uh, the sugars and the amino acids in the grains sort of, uh, co- are cooked together to get very, very dark colours, so very roasted flavours. The foam, um, one of the main reasons why Guinness foams so well is, apart from the CO2 producing the foam, they use nitrogen gas to give extremely stable foams. Uh, bubbles containing nitrogen gas are much more stable than those of CO2, and Guinness pioneered that technology. Now, I'll let you off if you haven't got a clue about this one, because quite frankly, I was quite shocked. It's from Kay, and she said, my daughter recently went on a school trip. I mean, where we're sending school kids on trips, he says, I don't know, because it says her daughter was told that in Tudor times, if beers w- were poured with no head on them, then they would put dead mice in the beer. Can you explain what this would achieve and why? Many thanks. I've never heard that one. There's all sorts of crazy, um, uh, you know, mythologies and uh, uh, truisms that uh, people have handed down down, down the ages. But um, I think possibly one of the things with mice is, you know, some beers get contaminated with Brettanomyces, and Brettanomyces classically has a barnyard-type flavour and sometimes called a mouse urine type of flavour. So there may be a sort of uh, something's got lost in the telling. Oh, so down the pub you just put a bit of mouse wee in your pint. Anyway, we we know you know we hear so many messages that like alcohol's really bad for you and uh, you know gives you cancer, gives you heart disease and things. But you know, in moderation, are there actually health benefits to drinking beer? Yeah, there are. The red wine guys of of made a big thing about this but you know it's just the same the truth is the same for beer one or two uh, beers a day uh, cuts down the risk of atherosclerosis it's been shown extensively so it's actually good for you beer also is a rich source of silicon and there's a guy over there in the uk who does a lot has done a lot of work on beer as a, in uh, countering things like osteoporosis beer is a significant source of several b vitamins and antioxidants so beer in moderation, I stress the moderation, actually is a, is a good component of a... And, is, and is, is the effect for on atherosclerosis, is that just the alcohol content then? 
The alcohol, uh, many people now believe the alcohol is the key ingredient in cutting down the risk of uh, atherosclerosis. It's, it's not some fancy, fancy antioxidant. The, the people talk about resveratrol in red wine. You know, you have to drink a phenomenal number of bottles of red wine a day to get the amount needed to have a beneficial effect. It's the alcohol that's a key component. Excellent. I'm absolutely gasping for a pint. And thank you very much. That's Professor Charlie Bamforth, who's Professor of Beer and Brewing at UC Davis. The job that we would all kill for. It's the Naked Scientist, Dr Chris and Dr Kat. So now you know what's actually in beer and how it's made. Well, now you're probably wondering, well, how long have we been making it for? You know, where did the first pint originate? Well, to find out, we sent Mira down to the Natural History Museum in London to find out a bit more about the history of beer. Beer is one of the world's oldest alcoholic beverages, dating back over 7,000 years, and it's still one of the most popular drinks in society today. But how's it made? And how was it discovered in the first place? I went to the Natural History Museum for one of their Darwin Live events, where the theme of the evening was the natural history of beer, and I had a chat to the event's speakers, Dr Dave Roberts, Head of Microbiology at the Natural History Museum, and Dr Robert Simmons, Curator of Archaeology at Fishbourne Roman Palace. Now, although many of us are beer drinkers, not all of us know just how this beloved beverage is actually made. So I asked Dave to tell me what's involved. Well, beers can be made from more or less any cereal grain, but traditionally we use barley. It's malted, which means to germinate it, which allows the starch in the grain to be turned into sugar. The sugar is then fermented with uh, a yeast, and the resulting liquor is beer. These days, we add hops to make the beer bitter, otherwise it's rather sweet for modern palates. Okay, and how has technology in the brewing process changed since that date? Today, industry is fully technological. It's using essentially large stainless steel vessels, computer-controlled breweries. We have the science of brewing. We know exactly how to control it now. And so you can go to a brewery, push a button, and the entire process will happen under computer control, and the product will be identical every time it comes out. Now moving on to the people that were actually drinking the beer. How far does beer go back? When's the earliest trace of people drinking beer? The earliest definitive evidence for honest-to-goodness beer is about 3000 BC, and that was in Samaria. But we have evidence from sculptures and from writing in Egypt back to about 5000 BC, thereabouts. But cereal grains were being collected back as far as 23,000 years ago. And the question then becomes, well, how do you eat cereal grains? Cereal grains themselves are very hard, and so you can't just chew them because we simply don't have the teeth for it. It's much easier if you soften the grains first. So if you soften them by soaking them in water, then you can smash them open. But at 23,000 years, we have no known way of cooking them then other than making them into a paste and putting them onto a hot stone. It's perfectly conceivable that if you were a little bit late, a little bit tardy in doing this, that they would have fermented. And if they were left in water, then the water would have gone fizzy and would have been actually safer to drink than stream water. So you think it may have happened by accident? I think it more or less must have. How about you, Robert? There has been an argument in the past that beer wasn't originally brewed, if you like, by accident from failed bread production, but was actually the original product and, and bread came later. Now, it's, it's a debate that's run on and on, but it's an interesting idea and it's quite plausible because beer is actually more nutritious than the bread would have been. When beer, say, first started being drunk, 
Was it associated with just, say, everyday people? Where everybody Was everybody drinking it? Or was it associated with different classes, do you think? The way I imagine um, for the production and consumption of beer to have taken place, it was a big communal get-together. There were fairly small groups of people living in the English countryside, and they would brood large quantities of this stuff. We're talking about you know, 100 litres, maybe 150, even more. It wouldn't have a long shelf life. So once it's brewed, it's got to be drunk. You know, ethnographic examples suggest within 24 hours. Even if it's got to be drunk within three days, that's a big party. And everybody would get involved and everybody would help drink the beer. It's also the case that in ancient Egypt, we know from the hieroglyphs that beer was drunk regularly with meals. So with all meals by everyone in society, from the pharaoh right down to the, to the smallest child. But it was also associated with at least three of the gods, ceremonies associated with at least three of the gods in ancient Egypt. So it was, as Rob said, exactly that. Everybody seemed to drink beer because it was a major food source. So there you have it. Drinking beer isn't only about the alcohol content, but the nutrition as well. But I guess the real question here is, what came first, the bread or the beer? Either way, I'm glad it was discovered because I, for one, am a big fan of this liquid bread especially now that lots of pubs and bars are expanding their beer menus. But how can I tell what a truly good beer is and taste all the flavours that are meant to be in there? Well, I spoke to Julian Harrington, a master brewer, and he took me through a traditional beer tasting to teach me how to really enjoy my pint. First of all, you should uh, swirl it to get the aroma off it. You should treat it like a wine. Try and sort of take some time over it and look at it and consider it and then swirl it to get all those lovely citrusy hops of it, those orangey, lemony flavours. So now you've got me swirling my pint. What next? Right, now you have to taste it. And you need to let it roll over the tongue because the tongue initially tastes the crude flavours, the sweetness, the acidity, the sourness and the bitterness. And then as it warms up on the tongue and as the carbon dioxide comes out of the beer because it's got a bit of fizz in it, that lifts the aromas in your nose and picks up the smell, getting the deeper, more plummy, raisiny fruit flavours that you, ca- you can't smell until they actually come off the tongue as it warms up. Mmm, that tasted mm, good. It's good. Uh, just getting lots of raisins and fruit, lots of fruity beers. What type of beer is it that we're drinking now? Uh, drinking a real ale or a cask beer. This is the one that uh, ha- isn't pasteurised and the beer and the yeast is allowed to sediment. So it's a very natural way and it's how all beer and even beers in Europe were made before they had the, the, the fizzy filtered beers that we have now. Beers are very complex. They have a bit more than grapes. The hops are the grapes of beers. There's the malt and there's all the things we do with the malt. Dark malts, uh, crystal type malts, there are lots of flavours in there. And there's over a thousand brewing yeast which can give you different uh, flavour notes. And then it depends on what you do in the brewery. Right. So that swirl and sniff, sip, Roll over your tongue, then look for the hang and after flavours that come out. Got it. Next time you're at the pub, why not sample some different beers to your usual and apply these tasting techniques to see if you can find all the flavours? Who knew drinking beer could be so complicated? Who indeed. Thank you very much. That was Mira talking to Dr Dave Roberts, Dr Robert Simmons and also Master Brewer Julian Harrington about the natural history of beer. Now actually, Julian took some time out from his busy life tasting beer Huh, what a busy life. Uh, to answer this question from Jonathan Olson from Canada, and he wanted to know, lambic beers that are typically from Belgium use wild yeast and taste wonderful. So how much of the flavour of beer comes from the yeast itself? Well, what Julian said to us was, as regards fermentations of all beers, yeasts can give a predominant flavour depending upon the fermentation conditions and whether one uses lighter flavours from the malt, and he says perhaps using rice as part of the recipe, for example, and how much bitterness or hop character that's used. 
So yeast produces fruit flavours from raisin, from ra- which ranges from raisins in strong ales to a sort of pear drop and banana flavours in wheat beers. So it can be all of the character of a beer, as in the latter example, or just part of it. Yummy. So there you go. This is Dr Chris and Dr Cat, and this is The Naked Scientists. Waiting in the wings is Dr Ray Marriott, and he's going to be telling us how carbon dioxide can revolutionise how you get the best money's worth from your hops. Sorting out the sparks from the quarks. The Naked Scientists. For more information, get online at nakedscientists.com. Now, here on The Naked Scientists, we are talking about beer. God, I want a drink. And we welcome to the studio Dr Ray Marriott from Botanics Limited. Hi, Ray. Hi, thank you. Um, So your company is working using carbon dioxide to extract chemicals from plants. Why do you want to do this? Well, the main reason for using this technology is really to try to selectively take out the active molecules from plants so that they can be um, more easily used, more efficiently used, they can deliver more. And in the case of hops, carbon dioxide happens to be a very good solvent just to remove the active uh, components, the bitterness, the aroma, the antimicrobial compounds from hops that are actually so important in beer. So you're basically getting the the good stuff out and leaving all the cruddy stuff behind. Yes, that's exactly right. Tell us a bit more how the actual process works. So looking on your website it talks about supercritical carbon dioxide and stuff. What are you doing to these things? Well, I think everybody thinks of carbon dioxide as a gas, but uh, carbon dioxide can in fact of course be a solid as dry ice, a pure liquid, a condensed liquid, or it can be a supercritical fluid. And in 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 liquid form and supercritical form, uh, it essentially behaves in both forms as a liquid. And this can actually be passed through a column of plant material and in doing so it it dissolves the materials that are soluble in that particular solvent, liquid or supercritical CO2. And then these can be recovered using either a separator or an evaporator and the carbon dioxide is then collected and reused and passed through the plant material. And in this way, we can actually use the carbon dioxide in what we call a closed-loop system to extract the active components from the plant material. So when you talk about the word solvent, you normally think of, you know, sort of organic solvents, chemicals. Why don't you use something like that? Well, using organic solvents, of course, is, is perfectly possible, but they leave behind uh, traces of the solvent within the material that, that you've extracted. The beauty of carbon dioxide is once you allow the extract to warm up, the carbon dioxide just evaporates. Now, this all sounds very kind of space age, but is it actually being used to make the beer in pubs? Very much. Um, over 95% of the hops that are now grown worldwide are processed in some way and about a third of those will be extracted using carbon dioxide and are used by many brewers as the basic ingredient for adding to the kettle. So before we had the ability to do this with carbon dioxide, Ray, would people therefore have just chucked the hops into the mix and let the flavour ooze out naturally? Yes, that's absolutely right. The whole cone hops would have been put into the kettle. But in in doing that, we have a a relatively inefficient way of adding bitterness and aroma because the the components that are so important from the hops are right in the very centre of the hop cone, in what is called the lupuline gland. And they have to diffuse out of that and then be solubilised in the wort to transfer the bitterness and aroma into the liquid. And that's a relatively time-consuming and inefficient way of doing it. And... Using that technique, how much would you have been able to recover of the potential flavourants that are in the hops, just waiting for it to ooze out that way? 
uh, about a third of, of the potential bitterness and aroma can be obtained from the hop. That's not much, so you'd be throwing away potentially two-thirds of the goodness from the hops. That's absolutely right, yes. And with, with your carbon dioxide approach, how much can you get out that way? Well, we extract about 95% of the, of the components, and they can then be added directly to the kettle uh, or, or later on, um, post, even per, post-fermentation into the beer. And once you've got the hop extract, presumably it's, it's, you can see it in a bottle, what does it actually look like once the carbon dioxide has evaporated? It, it's just uh, a very viscous um, orange-yellow liquid. And does that mean you add that as is, or can you further sub, sort of subdivide that and use it different fractions of it to get different types of beer, that kind of thing? You can use the extract exactly uh, as, he, as it comes from the CO2 extractor, and many brewers do. But yes, we can take that further, and we can then separate that into what we call the functional uh, molecules of the hop. So those molecules which deliver bitterness, those that deliver aroma, those that deliver the antimicrobial activity of hops, these can all be fractionated and delivered to the brewer or even to the food industry in a very usable form. And this means that we can make beers probably that you couldn't have made without this technique then? Yes, it does allow brewers to add bitterness and aroma completely independently instead of putting in a hop variety with a, a known ratio of aroma and a type of aroma. They can add a certain amount of defined bitterness and a certain amount of aroma and so it allows them to create all sorts of new types of beer. I'm very grateful to your company, Ray, for giving me <laughs> such a wonderful drinking experience. I haven't forgiven you yet for turning up empty-handed with no beer, though. Uh, but just lastly, it strikes me that the same technique could be used to get all kinds of exciting molecules from plants, because I'm thinking of nicotine from tobacco plants for nicotine replacement. I'm thinking of tetrahydrocannabinol from, say, cannabis for making... Dr drug extracts that people might want to use for, say, MS. So is that is the same thing possible? Yes, it is. And there's a wide range of plant extracts that are used from delivering just flavour and aroma right through to active pharmaceutical molecules. And this, what we call a clean green technology, I, I think we'll find increasing uses in this type of area. That's uh, Ray Mara. He's from Botanics Limited. Thank you very much, Ray. Ray's here in the studio. If you'd like to ask him any questions, you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com. Oh, I'm just wondering about the possibility of beer flavoured foods incredible anyway now as, as much as we enjoy the odd beer it's always best to enjoy it in moderation because drinking alcohol does have its health downsides so we sent ben to the pub to meet up with mike allison a liver specialist from addenbrook's hospital to find out more about the damage that alcohol can do while we're talking about alcohol, it's very important to remember that alcohol-related illness is a massive killer here in the UK and worldwide. And so to chat a bit more about that, I've come to the Flying Pig pub, and we're out in the beer garden. I'm with Mike Allison of Addenbrooke's Hospital. Hi, Mike. Hi there. So how big a problem is alcohol-related disease in the UK? It's a, a huge problem, and it's an increasing problem. And our concern, particularly from the liver point of view, is the trend for rapidly increasing amounts of alcohol consumption in the young, the binge-drinking culture and there's evidence that this can continue into people in their early 20s moving on to consistent heavy drinking which can result in severe liver damage and other end organ damage. So when people are drinking responsibly, such as right now I'm enjoying half a pint of nice bitter, what is it that actually happens to the alcohol after I've taken a swig? Well, it uh, obviously goes down your gullet into the stomach. There's a variable rate of absorption from the stomach and it enters blood system draining to the liver where it's metabolised. A lot of aspects of the damage that alcohol can cause is through its metabolism. So it's the metabolites of alcohol rather than the alcohol itself that does the damage. What does alcohol get broken down into? 
It gets broken down in particular to acetaldehyde, but it is particularly toxic to cells. It can change the number of cellular constituents, affect proteins, the cell wall, and a number of ways in which a cell works. So when the liver breaks alcohol down into these fairly toxic components, does that directly damage the liver? Uh, the metabolites can damage the liver, but the liver has a capacity to deal with these in a safe manner. The problem can arise, however, if the system is swamped. These you know, metabolites can't be themselves degraded down a safe route, and then you do get cellular damage, which over the course of time can lead to aggressive liver damage. And is it the damaged liver that leads to the hangover that uh, some of us are far too familiar with? I think that's multifactorial. I don't know that that's necessarily solely the liver. I think that you do get an alcohol-related gastritis, and that can contribute to the nausea and generally feeling awful. The, the neurological effects of a hangover in terms of alcohol will also be the dehydration one sees. And hence the advice to always drink some water before you go to bed if you've drunk plenty, which I think is, is very sensible advice. So I think it's multifactorial and not solely related to the liver. So once you've damaged your liver through the presence of these metabolites, um, what can this lead to? In the long term, excessive alcohol consumption can lead to cirrhosis. You get scar tissue in the liver, which is joined up and leads to architectural disruption. It leads to an increased risk of liver cancer. You can have exsanguination from bleeding from the gut, as well as fluid accumulation in the abdomen. In addition to that, what we see and what accounts for a large proportion of people being in hospital with liver disease is when someone has alcoholic hepatitis. And that is when someone comes jaundice, yellow eyes, yellow skin, uh, often with distension of the tummy with fluid in the abdomen. This can be a very severe illness. And in severe cases, around 40 to 50% of people do not survive to get out of hospital. And the worrying thing from our point of view is that we're seeing people come in with this condition in their 20s now, whereas it used to be in their 40s. So is there any way to go out, uh, get a bit drunk, have a, have a big night out, and then not do damage to your liver? Any night out such as that will damage the liver. It may not do so in a way that will be reflected three months later if it's a one-off, but certainly it will stress the liver. And if it's an ongoing basis and it's done nightly or regularly, then you will start to see aggression to what may be irreversible liver damage. And are there ways to slow down the process of getting drunk? You hear rumours that drinking milk before you go out will line your stomach and perhaps eating a meal before you go out? Certainly it's the case that if you have a full stomach, if you drink with meals, then that can reduce the risk of, of liver damage. That's not to say it's, it's reasonable. If you get drunk with a decent meal, that's, that's fine for liver. That isn't the case. But the body's tolerance of sensible amounts of alcohol with food is better than on an empty stomach. And one other rumour that we often hear is that if you have very expensive tastes and perhaps you're celebrating and you drink some champagne, that people say that fizzy alcohol goes straight to their head. Is there any truth in that? <laughs> I'm not aware of any evidence that that's the case. Well, thank you ever so much for coming to speak to me, and uh, cheers. Cheers. <laughs> that was Ben and Dr Mike Allison discussing liver, dam liver damage, even over a beer at the Flying Pig. And uh, we're going to go back to Ben later to find out how he's got on with his distillation. We've just had, talking about the ill effects of uh, too much boozing, Mark in Bletchley has pointed out that he's never had a hangover from eating bread. So uh, this, uh, it's definitely something in the booze, not just in the yeast. Well, now it's time for this week's Question of the Week with Diana O'Carroll. Hi, welcome to Question of the Week with me, Diana O'Carroll. Today we're sniffing around for an enigmatic organ. This is Ellen Kirkendall in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. I want to know if humans have a functioning Jacobson's organ. I've heard several different opinions on this matter. So what exactly is a Jacobson's organ? And why is there a debate surrounding its existence? 
Okay, I'm Peter Vernon from the Department of Physiology and Pharmacology at the University of Bristol, and I'm an expert in the vomeronasal system. And the Jacobson's organ is part of the vomeronasal system. It senses chemical stimuli such as marks which tell animals about the sex and the individual identity of other members of their species and are often called pheromones. Now, the Jacobson organ is found in many species, but by no means all species. And the question is whether or not there's a Jacobson's organ in humans. People have found a small infolding in the nose in humans and claimed that to be a Jacobson's organ. But the question is whether or not it's functional. And the overwhelming weight of evidence is against its function. For instance, it has a very different appearance from the Jacobson's organ that you find in other species. For instance, there are no nerves that can be found that connect it to the brain and therefore it's unlikely that there's any way it can actually send a signal to the brain. And moreover, there are genes which are vital for the function of the vomeronasal organ or the Jacobson's organ in other species, but they don't work anymore in humans. They've become redundant during human evolution. And that happened at about the time that the new and the old world monkeys um, split off from a common ancestor in Africa many millions of years ago. So it seems very unlikely that the Jacobson's organ can have any function at all in humans. So there is some evidence for its existence in human noses, but it seems unlikely that our brain is actually receiving any information from it. It may be that our ancestor hominins had one to detect sex pheromones. It's more likely now, though, that you can only tell a man from a woman from their scent because there are a lot of boys out there who smell pretty awful anyway. Otherwise, it might be worth memorising a poor homme or poor femme perfume counter. Next week, we're flapping about with this one. Hello, I'm Mike from Leeds. I've heard that all mammals, except humans, live the same number of heartbeats, about one and a half trillion. However, my blue and gold macaw has a resting heartbeat ten times mine and a life expectancy of 80 years. In other words, roughly equivalent to an elephant or large whale. Why is that? What's different about the avian heart that gives it such a long life? And then we've got this one to melt your heart with. Hi there, my name's Ian Guest. I'm from Sheffield. Uh, Despite being a former physics teacher, I got stuck on a problem, which was, why is it that chocolate chips in cookies melt if you touch them, but they survive the baking process? So that's it for the Naked Scientist question of the week. Don't forget to send me your chocolate answers. And if you have any more questions of your own, then post them to me on question of the week at thenakedscientist.com. Back to the studio. Now, of course, you should send all your chocolate to me, dark chocolate, please. Thanks to Diana. So if you have any idea why chocolate seems to only melt when it's messy, or if McCall's do get more than their fair share of heartbeats, do let us know. Email question of the week at thenakedscientist.com. And just in case anyone's wondering, cake of the week this week, which we have every week here on The Naked Scientist, baked by my loving wife, this week is a voluntary cake, which has been sent in by my friend Hope. And it's delicious biscuits covered in chocolate, and we're enjoying yum, them very much. Yum, yum. Fancy listening to The Naked Scientist in your bed? <laughs> on your way to work, or even at work. Why not subscribe to our podcast? For more information, visit nakedscientist.com forward slash podcast. And here on The Naked Scientist, it's time to go back to Ben to find out how his distilling has gone. Hello again, welcome back to Kitchen Science. While I've been down the pub, Chris has been keeping an eye on our distillation here, and I can see that in the bottom of his pear-shaped flask, he's actually collected a few millilitres of clear liquid. Chris, what's happened while I've been away? 
Well, you missed the uh, exciting bubble moment when all the beer frothed up. Uh, we've got a little pressure release valve, so that wasn't a problem. And what's happened, the alcohol and water mixture has come out of the beer and condensed at the top and has run down the tube and collected in this flask here. And now we have what should be almost pure alcohol in this glass. So can we take that out and have a closer look at it? Well, we're not allowed to drink it. That would be very bad for you. It's slightly yellowy, so that means that some of the products in the beer have come through as well as the alcohol itself, which is what you'd expect. But it's nowhere near the colour of the beer, so presumably the compounds that make up the colours in that beer have been all left behind. The vast majority of them have, yes, indeed. Leaving us with what could be very tasty, but now almost completely non-alcoholic beer. Well, there would still be some alcohol in there, but a much smaller proportion, as most of the alcohol has come out into this flask. In fact, if you kept the process going, what would happen is that different compounds would come out of the beer. If we wanted to, we could pop another flask on and collect a different type of substance. In the whisky distillation process, which we're looking at, indeed, it's very important that different stages of the distillation are siphoned off into different directions, and that is indeed the art of the whisky distiller, is to control the flow of the fluid out of the initial barrel and into the final drink. Uh, Incidentally, you can't call it whisky until it's been maturing in a barrel after the distillation process for three years. So if distillation is such a a useful process for separating and purifying different chemicals, other than making strong alcoholic beverages, what else do we use it for? Well, it's fantastically useful for, for all kinds of things. I mean, taking crude oil, distilling it into paraffin, into kerosene, into gasoline, all the different kinds of oil, um, desalinating salt water to come up with fresh water and salt. Any sort of process where the boiling points of the liquids involved are more than about 10 degrees apart, you can use distillation to purify or identify individual compounds in a mixture of fluids. So it's a really useful process we can use to separate out all sorts of things and get the different products out of crude oil and that sort of thing. But how long has distillation been used? Distillation has been around for millennia. Uh, Originally, it was Babylonian alchemists in Mesopotamia. That's the first known set of distillation equipment. But it was uh, refined into its modern form by, of all people, a a Muslim Arab in about 800 AD. And in fact, the word alcohol itself is Arabic, and it means finely divided, uh, which is very, very interesting. Of course, the Arabs, they used it to make perfumes rather than alcohol. Okay, so I have been down to the pub, and in the time that I've been away, a little bit of liquid is collected in your pear-shaped flask. Now, for all I know, that could just be some water that you've put in there. So is there any way that we can prove that that's the alcohol distilled out of the beer? Well, normally you'd measure specific gravity, and when you measure uh, the specific gravity of the whiskey, customs and excise keep that section of the distillation process under lock and key so that the brewery can't cheat and say that it's stronger than it really is. But uh, what, what we can do today, because it's too small to measure the specific gravities, we can just set fire to it and see burns. That proves it's flammable and most likely to be ethanol. Brilliant. Well, uh, obviously this is something we should do somewhere safe, I guess. Of course, yeah. I would just like to point out that we have all been wearing safety spectacles and appropriate equipment, and we should do the burning in a fume hood. Okay, well, let's pour this liquid out into a beaker and take it to a fume hood, and uh, let's see if it lights. Okay, so we've come over to the fume hood now, and uh, I see you're just going to pour that into into a beaker. There's not a lot of liquid there, is there? There must be a couple of millilitres, is that? Very, very small amount. So let's see if we can get this lit. Ooh! There was a flash of blue. Well, that was very brief, but there was clearly a flash of, of blue flame there. That did ignite. So uh, I guess this proves that you have, in fact, distilled alcohol out of beer. That is correct. Uh, probably what you've got here is a slightly larger proportion of water than we wanted, but a lot of the alcohol came out in one go. Yep. 
And that's all we have for Kitchen Science this week, but we'll be back with more next week, so I'd just like to say thank you to Chris. Thank you very much. And goodbye. Cool. So by heating a low-alcohol drink and collecting the vapour as it evaporates, you can uh, condense it back into alcohol. So you could even make spirits if you wanted to, not recommended at all. Now, uh, here on The Naked Scientist, got this email from James in Derby. I caught a three-inch-long spider in my house with a special miniature vacuum cleaner designed to, to catch spiders. I didn't know how to kill it, so I coated it liberally with WD-40. <laughs> if anyone doesn't know what that is, it's penetrating oil. You spray it on things, and it makes nuts and bolts easier to undo because it's got a complex mixture of various uh, gasoline derivatives in it. He says it took about five minutes to die, which I hope wasn't too painful. <laughs> so what was in the WD-40 that killed it? What do you think, Kat? I think it's probably um, blocked its breathing breathing apparatus or something like that. That's a horrible thing to do. You should let it out, let it run free. Ray, what do you reckon? Probably the solvent, which is actually carrying the penetrating oil, uh, probably asphyxiated it first and then it blocked its spiracles afterwards, yeah. Because most volatile things can act as general anaesthetics, so when people Mm. inhale lighter fluid and things, they're actually putting all that gas into their brain and it seems to cause brain cells to decrease their activity, so it could be that it it anaesthetised it and then, as you say, asphyxiated it. Maybe it died high as a kite, You never know. Well, it wasn't that high because it was in in the place. Um, Ray, there's a question here from Keith in Watford, and he says, I assume the CO2 used in your fractionation uh, process is part of the general CO2 found in the air and gets recycled accordingly. I think that's a really interesting question. Um, There are processes such as fermentation and the production of fertilisers which actually generate quite high volumes of carbon dioxide and it's from these processes that we actually capture and purify the carbon dioxide and then use it for extraction and then it's used in in multiple extractions so it's actually quite an efficient way of using it and it's quite a neat way of of capturing CO2 from the brewing fermentation process and reusing it to extract one of the raw materials. We've had a call in from Mike in Beach and he wants to know if there's any danger to health from drinking cider. Now, I would think there probably is if you get really, can't say that word, get really drunk, fall over, do something stupid. Um, but I should probably think the same danger. Well, cider is a little bit generally. stronger than beer on yeah. average, isn't it? So goes down a treat as well. I would think enjoyed at the same rate as any other alcoholic beverage and uh, within guidelines prescribed by the government of not more than 21 units a week for men and 14 units a week for women. I can't see any reason why it would be worse for you, but obviously in excess it's going to be bad. But, yeah. but do you think it counts as one if you're five a day? Fruit I, and don't, I don't think it counts as a fruit and veg a day, no. <laughs> Got one here for you, Kat. This is from uh, Natasha. She's actually listening in Australia. And she says, best sites podcast, so very entertaining. But why do we cry when we laugh? Um, I think that's because you scrunched up your face in hysteria. It's actually squeezing out the tears from your tear ducts. It's also blocking the ducts in your nose that tears come through. So it's kind of all pouring out of your eyes. Just Lovely. like to say, thank you, Kat. Just like to say hello to Dan Nicholson, who is listening in the south of Sweden. He's in Ganilla. He says he enjoys it very much, although Dr. Chris has to talk a bit slower. But he <laughs> says it's, it's helping him to learn English very, very well. <laughs> so I'll, I'll endeavour to do that. Look, thank you very much. Thank you uh, very much to our guests this week, Irene Terry from the University of Utah, Ray Marriott from Botanics Limited. Thank you very much for joining us, uh, Ray. And also Charlie Bamforth was on the phone earlier from University of California at Davis. He's Professor of Beer and Brewing, a job that we all want. Thank you also to our production team, Ben Mira, Petro and Diana. Have a great week. We're back next time taking your science questions. Any question on anything, chris at nakedscientist.com. In the meantime, have a very nice week. See you next time. The Naked Scientists are sponsored by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.